Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the better version of the song Than the one that is on the album in color It like a like a like a dig like a do got be do The song is I Want You to Want Me and it is the way better version of it. Cause this one isn't on in color. This one is on the 1978 live album Cheap Trick at Budokan. It's also number 426 out of 500 on the Spotify Ridge, the 500, with me, the King Kaduga, Josh Adam Myers. What's up, you true dukes that have been tuning in since the jump? Lockdown, in your houses, quarantine, social distancing, still listening to the record each week. This is the best time to do my podcast challenge if that's what maybe that's why it could be so much bigger if i started calling it a challenge do the 500 album challenge all these like dance videos on tiktok doing the 500 dance challenge i love you guys i hope you're doing well i'm doing great man i really enjoying the quarantine i'm having a good time i'm not gonna lie i'm staying really busy i'm working out i got the dog if you do not have a good situation out there. I am praying for you and sending my love, and hopefully you get through this and, and everybody in your family's safe and secure. All right. You guys want to find out what the fuck is up with this record? This self-produced live album came out on Epic Records by Rockford, Illinois' hard rock power pop band Cheap Trick. And it was recorded over two late April nights of 1978 in Tokyo, Japan's famous indoor sports arena. Originally intended to be an exclusive Japanese-only release because after three albums and a grueling tour schedule opening for bands like Kiss, Queen, The Kinks, Cheap Trick still wasn't breaking through in America. They were actually about a million bucks in debt. So fame and fortune seemed spookle. But a phenomenon was happening in Japan. Their first three releases went gold with number ones and top 10 singles. So late April of 78, with little to lose in America, the band went for their first tour of Japan to test the waters. When they landed, uh, they were greeted by 5,000 screaming fans at the airport. Like, they just got off the Southwest flight, came down, they grabbed their bags, and it's just, ah, ah, 
And guess what? Just like their heroes, the Beatles, Cheap Trick Mania didn't stop there. They couldn't walk down the street or even step out of their hotel rooms without screaming crazed fans chasing them to take pictures and rip off their clothes. In fact, hotels were kicking them out because of the thousands of fans flooding their lobbies and waiting outside for them to catch a glimpse. When they played those two nights at Budokan, they were almost drowned out by the screams of their frenzied female audience of 12,000. 12,000 screaming female Asian chicks. Just, ah! You can hear it when you listen to this record. Recording the shows was the idea of their record company, who decided that every act that they had that went through Japan would put out a live at Budokan album with Cheap Trick coming after Bob Dylan. They were already monsters on stage after years of solid touring, but that energy rarely made it onto their records until they released this in Japan on October 8th of 78. And this is the coolest shit I've ever read in my life. As Rick Nielsen recalled, we rode coach on the way there and first class on the way back. Booyah! That is the most Dougal shit I have ever heard. While obviously huge in Japan, hip record stores in America soon caught wind and the import record sold 30,000 of its eventual 75,000 copies domestically. So the label released six songs from it in America on a promo record called From Tokyo to You, which blew up and guaranteed the full album a domestic release in February of 79. It became Cheap Tricks best-selling album going triple platinum and its lead single i want you to want me the better version went to number seven on billboard's hot 100 their highest ranking single to date and i honestly have a guest today that is probably my highest ranking this is fucking cool that i'm talking to this guy ladies and gentlemen the drummer from the cult velvet revolver and guns and roses the one and only Matt Sorum. He's a rock and roll hall of fame inductee, an environmentalist as well, not just a fucking rock star, and an activist who helps kids get instruments in between the grades K through 12. The dude is awesome. I'm a huge fan. I fanboy out at the beginning, depending on what edit he does, because I fucking was like, I was really stoned when we did this. It's the apocalypse. The interview's great. We're having a great time. You know, I love it. I'm so happy I got to do this. It's quarantine, so he's at his place in Palm Springs. I'm at my place in the Hollywood Hills, baby. Keeping a Dougal 100 all the time. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 on Spotify. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And follow the Facebook group, the 500 Podcast with Jam, and the 500 Podcast fan page where you got my buddy Evan controlling it. And he's a meth addict, so it'll be fantastic. Get some fucking shit over there, people. And for all things 500, go to the website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but... Here we go, here we go, here we go with number four. Oh, 26 out of 500. A cheap trigger, 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 trigger at Budokan. All right, enjoy. Hello there, Matt Sorum. Hello there, Matt Sorum.
Welcome. Are you ready to talk? Are you ready to talk? The crowd roars. One, I... You have to understand how much I love you, dude. Um, I'm such a big fan. I met you a few times. Uh, first, I met you in the parking lot of a, the Guitar Center on fucking Sunset. And I was like, holy shit, Matt. And you were like, you gave me the rock fingers and that was it, even though I probably look like a stalker. And then the second time I met you was uh, at this fucking shit. It, it was during Nam. You were playing at some gymnasium with like Johnny Depp. And a few other people, and I was backstage with my friend Tall Wilkenfeld. Tal. And you walked wow, by, and you, yeah. we were, after you were done, you were like, "Yo, what's up, Tall?" And I, and then you were like, "What's up, dude?" And you looked at me, and I was like, "Dude, that's the coolest motherfucker I have ever seen, dude." Oh, so this is like, and I saw you with Velvet Revolver at the Nine Thirty Club before your album dropped, and it was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my life. But. This is what I really wanted to talk about was when I first, when we, we were waiting for you to set everything up, I just Googled your image and I found this picture of you in the band Why Can't Tori Reed. Is that it? It's like you and Tori Amos were in a band together in the 80s. And uh, dude, yeah. your hair is fucking awesome. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was after an all-nighter, too. I did my own makeup, too. <laughs> if people haven't seen you, uh, you have the greatest you know, curls that, in rock and roll, bro. Yeah. Well, I I had pretty curly hair. I, I, I somehow, I think it had to do with drugs, basically. But um, with the more drugs I did, the curlier my hair got. Or I could- Yeah, drugs will make you get a perm. And I could, yeah, I could hide, I could hide drugs in my hair, too, which was great. Because everyone would get, you know, it's like, <laughs> I could go through like, you know. Dude, I think a vial of ketamine just fell out of Matt's hair. There was a time in Hollywood when if you didn't have the right hair, you couldn't get in a band. So that particular era in Hollywood was early 80s. And I met, and I met Tori playing in a piano bar. And uh, we put a band together and I was basically the instigator. And then we got signed to Atlantic Records by Jason Flom. And I got I got no return phone call for like two months. And I realized that they didn't sign the band. They signed Tori. Oh, <laughs> they were like, dude, we cannot have that drummer with the feathered perm. There's no fucking way he's going to be able to resonate with ladies. <laughs> he's No, he's distracting the audience. You know, it's like they're all looking at that, <laughs> yeah, that guy and it's. You know, so anyway, long story short, yeah. Let's dive into the record. So mm -hmm. tell me about yeah. when did you first hear Cheap Trick? Well, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 70s. You know, I was born in the 60s, but, you know, my, my upbringing was 70s, right? So my, my musical background, my learning uh, launching pad for being a drummer came from that era. So you know, Cheap Trick came out a little bit later in the 70s. There was a bunch of bands I was into in the early 70s. Deep Purple, you know, Sabbath, of course. Uh, you know, even Queen out of England uh, before before uh, Freddie cut his hair short. You know, they were yeah. the Killer Queen era and all that stuff. And then, you know, obviously Kiss was one of the first concerts I saw in 75. Great band. Uh, at the Long, Long Beach Arena. So when I when I discovered Cheap Trick was probably actually the record we were about ready to talk about because, you know, I saw them and I understood the imagery of it and everything and I and you know I, I remember hearing Surrender and that was probably the first 
big single that I heard, which is off the second album. Great song. Uh, yeah. And then obviously they made this live record that became their biggest selling record of all time. So you kind of couldn't get away from it. And, you know, after like, so after the Alive album, which came out in about 75, and then Peter Frampton, obviously the biggest, one of the biggest selling live albums of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to Frampton, dig into that. Yeah. Which was like do 76. You feel like I do? That's the only shit I know from that record. <laughs> yeah. Which was like 76 or 77 around that era. Uh, uh, basically live albums became a thing that bands did and, and released, you know, and I, I, I think the first live album I heard that I loved was made in Japan by, by deep purple, but that was early seventies. So, yeah. So this is 79. So like, so, so you're, you're hearing this from the first time you've already had all these different records come out from your artists that you love doing live records, cheap trick, you know about you fuck with them, but then this comes out and what does this do to you? Well, I think what it did for everybody in that era is we all love live music and everybody was, you know, when I was a kid, you went to concerts, you know, and then you saw the band live and, and you got to remember bands like Queen were going to Japan and imagery of Japan was a huge thing in rock and roll when you were a kid. It was like, oh my God, they're in Japan. But you would only see the picture in like Cream Magazine or Circus Magazine and you were just like, you were enamored with with the imagery of them hanging out in like Tokyo, walking with kids. And, you know, I remember seeing the Queen photographs and it was so alluring to me as a kid. So when you heard about Cheap Trick going to Japan and here you got this handsome guy, Robin Zander. Yeah, the two handsome guys and the two nerdy guys. <laughs> yeah, right? dude, it's like I've never seen such a dichotomy of sexy and ugly. <laughs> yeah, but that's the that was the angle they played. And we actually stole that a little bit for Neurotic Outsiders. You know, we had uh me and Duff were the two rock guys. And then we had Steve Jones and John Taylor were dressed in like Vivian Westwood suits. And we were always thinking about, we always thought about Cheap Trick, even though I don't think we were nerdy. We were just trying to kind of come up with some kind of gimmick. And that, you know, their gimmick became, oh, there's two handsome guys and there's two kind of weird guys. <laughs> and, but you would see the imagery. And then when you heard the fans, the way they laid that into the record, it just brought so much excitement from the original studio versions i mean the you know i want you to want me was a bigger single from the live version than from the record um, oh yeah and, and night and day too because like i i had only heard the live song uh you know in on the radio growing up and then when we already broke down their cheap tricks record in color uh, a few months ago and i was like oh i was so excited to hear i want you to want me and then you hear the regular version you're like this is the cheesiest shit I have ever heard. Like, where the fuck is the live? Like that fucking power, you know? Well, they, had, you know, they had that, they had that live loose thing, and you know, you stick a band in the studio, and they're, you know, they they just wrote the song and they played it, you know, maybe if whatever amount of time to get the take, yeah, and and it becomes sort of a little bit sterilized, I guess. So when yeah, you heard oh, the so live, sterilized, yeah. Yeah, and it was a little more up tempo. It had a punky feel to it, but pop at the same time. And you know, that album came out. That's that song I want you to want me was on the In Color record, but then you got to remember they they recorded uh the live live from Budokan before the Heaven Tonight album came out. So those yeah. You know, if you listen to have if you listen to Live from Budokan, there isn't a lot of Heaven Tonight on there. I think the only one they did on Live from Budokan was uh, 
maybe surrender. Yeah, I, I felt like, you know what's funny that you're saying that is because, like I said, my only experience with Cheap Trick was the hits and the album In Color because, like I said, we did it on this podcast. And so to really, I, I didn't understand why people dug Cheap Trick the way that they do after listening to In Color until I heard at Budokan because this album is real rock star shit, dude. Like I like you could just feel the energy of the crowd. You can feel mm-hmm. the band vibing off of the crowd. And then you start researching it, not just knowing the songs, but dude, this album is in the library of fucking Congress. Well, yeah, and you gotta remember that in those days, bands released albums every year. Like, you know, labels were pressing to put put records out. So when they released Heaven Tonight. I think that was like maybe the spring of 78. Now, Live from Budokan was recorded, I think, in April, and they released Heaven Tonight in May. So they they re- they released Live from Budokan based on the fact that Heaven Tonight wasn't doing that great. And then and then they heard an album, they heard a live recording, and they're like, oh my God, we got something here. Plus, with all the energy that was going on with live records, like everyone knew Frampton comes alive. So all the labels were like, let's put the live album out. We got the recording. It didn't cost us anything. Well, yeah. they put that out six months after Heaven Tonight. Yeah. And then they then they re-released singles from the In Color record. And, and so with the only difference being Ain't That a Shame. And uh yeah. that wasn't that was just a cover they did live, which became a big single for them too. So I, I, I was, I knew, I knew the same songs you did. I want you to want me surrender, but there's songs like clock strikes 10 amazing, amazing song, you know, uh, California man, which is funny because they perform that at live in Budokan, but it's not on the first release. It's only on the reissue. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast.
what I love, and especially because you said it earlier, it was about Japan. What is it about Japan where their fans are just like batshit crazy nuts? Because what I was reading about Cheap Trick was that they were fucking like the Beatles when they showed up there. They couldn't walk down the street. Girls are ripping off their clothes, etc. Have you ever experienced something like that? Like on a tour? Was there a place where you were just like you, you felt like you were in the Beatles in your career well, in a region? Brazil, probably. Because when I when I first joined Guns N' Roses and, and we played Rock and Rio in 91, and uh, it's it's in my book, all the stories that we were going to come. My book was going to come out this month, but we pushed it to August based on all this crap that's going on. But Plug it, dude, dude, take this moment, plug the book. It talks about when I get off the airplane it's my first show. We're playing 140,000 seat stadium. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, that's, here that's I am. a ridiculous number. Yeah. 158,046. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we sold out two nights. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Uh, so I get down to Brazil. And here I am. I've just joined the band. You know, we're, we're in the middle of making Usual Illusions 1 and 2, which, you know, we went out and performed a bunch of songs. But anyway, we land at the airport. Izzy, me, Axel, Slash, and Duff. They take us down through the bottom of the airport because there's about four or 5,000 kids out front, right? Screaming like crazy. And so they got to get us out the back and we're in these vans and we're going through this crowd and they're banging on the van and they're, they're, they're climbing on top of the car. And <laughs> I looked out the window and I go, I look over at Izzy Stradley. He goes, hey, Izzy goes, welcome to the band. I go, man, this is like being in the Beatles. I'm like, you know. <laughs> And that's that's when I really felt that sort of fandom because you don't yeah. really get that in America. You know, I don't I remember being a kid and going to like the Long Beach Arena and like going to see Deep Purple and then going back by the backstage gates and waiting for the limos to pull out. Yeah. And and going, Hey, you know, but there'll only be about like twenty of us out there, you know? And Yeah, yeah. And, you know, thinking you're gonna get an autograph or something, but uh as a kid, but but that was how I felt there. And even in Japan, same thing. When we landed and we did the Tokyo Dome with Guns N' Roses, I remember landing and all these kids at the airport. And the Japanese fans were so amazing because they love to give you gifts. So they make little like they make little dolls of you and draw paintings and give you a bottle of sake and I'm just, I'm just hoping that they made a doll of you but with the Tori Amos band hair they're like you're like dude no, I don't, no, I don't rock, I, that. I, I don't I rock had, that shit no more I had the same curly <laughs> ass hair but a headband remember it was like crazy oh yeah 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 and, and but remember it was the early 90s it was sort of, of a course. You, look in the, you look in the mirror and go I look good now you look back and you're like oh my god no yeah. judgment, bro. Like, dude, I, I have I have wavy hair, bro. I use Diva Curl. I know what it's all about, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't think they had like flat irons back there or like straightening <laughs> shit. You know, I don't know. I mean I mean maybe I could have got something for like African African American hair, but I wasn't like <laughs> I wasn't hanging around with Gilby Clark yet, you know. He Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's that the guy. straightest hair I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't hip to it, you know. So <laughs> And I didn't really give a shit, to be honest. I mean, we were just drinking and having fun and, you know, letting it fly, letting our freak flag fly. But so I felt like that. And I felt like that in South America. So I could represent. But as a kid watching Cheap Trick or Queen, remember the imagery, you're like, wow, Japan. And it was such a, such a mystical place. But 
you know, now I played with Robin Zander a lot. We talk about, and they're, and they're still big there. They could go back to Japan and play multiple nights because they have that that thing that sort of it just resonated with Japan. I mean, the weirdest thing was going to Japan with Guns N' Roses, and the band that was bigger than us, which was so bizarre, was Mr. Big. Oh, hold on, little girl, show me what she's done. To- Dude, that song fucking rips, bro. They were huge in Japan. I mean, they could play massive arenas. And in America, you know, they did okay. They did, did pretty- I? Yeah, they, maybe they played 930 Club, but they're not fucking, you know, they're not doing arenas like, like VR or fucking GNR, dude. That's what's so funny is that you can be – enormous in Tunisia, but no one knows who the fuck you are in Detroit. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stories about that. So you got to go where the love is, right? I always tell, you know, people think, Oh man, I remember having a conversation with pink one time and she was like, man, uh, I can't even get any gigs going on in America, you know, but they love me in Australia. And I, I'm doing 21 shows down in Australia. I go, go for it. I mean, fucking do that every, like that. Yeah, dude, go with the money is, go with the love is. <laughs> that's the most Eckerd, that's the most Eckerd Tolle shit I've ever heard in my life about being present. It's like, nobody wants to hear you in fucking San Bernardino. Then go to fucking uh, Hanoi. It's a and, big and white world out song. there. Yeah, it's a right, big so, world. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into the record. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so the album opens with Hello There. Uh, Peter, play the first verse. So I, in my in my opinion, this is the greatest opener in concert history, and I think it's mostly because of the story. So uh, it was written as a perfect concert opener, but it was mostly used because they wanted to play it during sound check, and most of the time they wouldn't get a sound check, so they used this song. They'd open up their shows so they didn't have to waste a song with the sound person uh, while they were adjusting their levels. Well, that's right. I mean, and they understood once they did it, how epic it is. I mean, I still use it when Robin comes and plays with me. We use it as the opener because it's the best opener probably ever written. I mean, in my opinion. And then they got Goodbye, right? Which they did on the Buddha. Oh, which is great. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's good. Funny, but, it's, but, but, but this is, you have to keep this in mind. The first, my first real experience with the yeah. band Cheap Trick is mm-hmm. listening to In Color. This is the first song I hear. I got it on my headphones and I'm like, Oh, I couldn't imagine what this would be like live. This would just blow the fucking roof off the place. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question, because you mentioned, you said something about how you, because I know you've jammed with Robin Zander uh, in Kings of Chaos. Were there any preconceived notions did you have going into it? Like, were what was it like upon meeting them? Because you're playing with somebody you you grew up listening to. Well, you know, I, I I played with Robin. Robin had come and guested with Velvet Revolver a couple of times. I remember Bunny actually came out and played. And we, you know, we did a cover of Surrender with Velvet Revolver for a B-side. Like, we had to do a lot of B-sides, you know, because yeah. it would give, like, you'd have to do an extra single for Japan or something for, like, a, you know, a release. So we did, like, weird covers, but that was, like, a song we all loved. And so I remember one night... uh I think we were in like someplace. Well, we were near Chicago for sure. I think it was Alpine Valley or like, or one of those sort of venues. 
and uh and uh Robin and uh and and Rick and Bunny came backstage and I remember them rolling in and I think they were still partying in those days because we were like we were all trying to be on the straight and narrow and they came in and and I remember Bunny got up on my drums you know and here I got this big enormous rock kit and he's up there and I came out front and played tambourine and sang I stood in front of Slash's amp which was like oh my god really (laughs) like how loud I couldn't even hear a word I was singing it was I was like Slash you there's nothing but guitar where I'm standing. It's like, <laughs> so Rick Nielsen's over there and, uh, and he's playing all these crazy chords. Like, it, you know, he's got such a loose vibe and Robin came out dressed in the dream police outfit, the whole thing. And, uh, and we did surrender. And that was kind of the time when I started to get to know him better because they were around. And, and then he, I think Robin came and played with us again, uh, someplace else he got up with us. So we just started doing that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then I got, you know, I got his phone number and then I went on a tour in, in Africa with, uh, with my band Kings of Chaos. And I invited Robin Zander. I had Billy Gibbons and Steven Tyler, you know, three of my, probably Jesus three Christ. of my favorite bands out of the seventies. And, yeah. And so I, you know, when I put the set list together, it was just like, oh my God, this is like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, Jesus left Chicago and you're like, you know, waiting on the bus, you know, uh, you know, all the, all the classic, uh, ZZ, ZZ Top. top. And then, yeah. you know, then I'm like, I'm like Steven, you know, we're not doing love in an elevator. I'm, we're doing toys in the attic, you know, <laughs> back in the saddle, you know, all the, cl- all my he favorite. Was like, I could, he's like, I don't care. Just as long as I can go. You're like, all right, we got you, bro. Don't it? You, yeah. know, you do that on like five tracks, bro. Yeah. And then <laughs> now I got, now I got Robin Zander singing Tush, right? Cause oh, that wow. was, that was Dusty's part, you know? So Robin, I, I get Steven and Robin and Billy all doing, uh, we did a, you know, come together Beatles because if you listen to cheap trick, there's a lot of Beatles influence in that. And, and Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred, but it's, it's very just down to the harmonies, just the structure of their songs. Yeah. And that was an easy one to throw together. It's like, I say to, I say to young musicians, there's a certain catalog of songs you need to learn. And if you don't know them, you know, get out of the business, you know, so (laughs) you've got got to be ready to play. uh, I want to take you higher by Sly and the family stone at the drop of a hat. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, the, the classics, right. Come together, you know, rock and roll, all those songs that are sort of just put that in your, your repertoire. And sure. But so anyway, we did those kind of things. And then Robin just became a really go-to guy. And one of the most humble guys I've ever met. He, you know, not to say that Steven isn't humble, but he's the classic lead singer. You know, he's got to have a uh, bottle of water at a certain temperature and, you know, things like that. <laughs> Three yeah. assistants. And Robin's just like, Robin's a guy, you got to remember, when Cheap Trick got together, he was the guitar player. He wasn't, they were looking for a different singer. They were looking for a, a guy to sing lead and they couldn't find a singer. He was going to be the rhythm guitar player. And the story goes is, you know, they couldn't find a guy and Robin would, like I'll sing and he kind of became a lead singer by default but if you see some of the stuff from Budokan he's on guitar and singing on a lot of songs and then he started he started to go up front as a front man later and just sing with the microphone and you know and do that kind of thing but so so Robin I always 
My classic thing is lead singer disease. What is that? LSD. And what I say is, if the guy never had to carry an amplifier or carry equipment into the venue and he's the lead singer and he just shows up and says, where is my microphone? That's where you LSD. get the, that, yeah, dude, that's he, where the problem starts. It's like, cause it's like three tabs of LSD. So you look at a guy like Robin Sander and you go, Oh, that guy huffed gear. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he had the, he had the band van and he owned, I believe the story goes, he owned the PA. So, they oh, would, then you're 100 percent in the band. Then now <laughs> he's a, he's a guy who's huffed gear. He's lifted gear. He's, he's gone. A slapper. Yeah. yeah, and that's my little French bulldog. And uh, so basically, that's why I think he's just such a genuine guy. But at the same time, I don't feel he gets the respect he deserves as one of the greatest rock singers. In he really doesn't. He really doesn't. Uh, but. You know, it, it. I think it's just like with why we're doing this podcast. There's a lot of people just, you know, in my age group, I'm 40. They probably never really listened to Cheap Trick. They know the hits and that's about it. You and know what I mean? It, like I said, he's one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest rock singers. If you listen to the range of his vocal, it's way up in the stratosphere. It's in, it's fantastic. Yeah. And, and, but he's never had that sort of like David Lee Roth, Steven Tyler, put yourself out there. Yeah, hey, man, here I am. Whoa. You know, he doesn't like, it's not like he doesn't sell himself, but he just sings and plays rock and roll. And they're, for for me, Cheap Trick is a working class band. They're from the Midwest. They're like, they're a band that just tours, plays. To this day, they're still on the road, just going every night. Let me ask you a question because you, you mentioned something. You were talking about like, LSD, you're talking about like, you know, Xander and, and just being this guy's guy, being a part of the band, schlepping, but you also played with two of the biggest singers that I think have that that myth of being the LSD. Like, you know, how, how is that like, you know, when you see play somebody like Robin Xander and then having played with two guys who are as talented as, as anybody ever could be, but also just have these stigmas about them how, how do you see that difference well it's it, well it's interesting because those guys become bigger phenomenon somehow because there is this sort of you know wacky craziness around them right which makes yeah. them a whole other level of the, the the classic rock and roll lead singer they've got this 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 other stuff that you hear about you know yeah, and then yeah. and then it, it you know being in guns and roses that was a dangerous rock and roll band you never knew what you're gonna get from Axl Rose, right? So he's going to come out and he's going to give you the show he's going to give you. And you don't know if that's going to be good or bad or otherwise. So it never was bad. Don't get me wrong. When I was in the band, if he was in a bad mood, that was a great show. It was like, yeah, you know, all energy went into the, what, what we did on stage. And it, it, you know, there was nights we went up there and we weren't even talking to each other, but man, we would throw down because for rock and roll, you, 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 you would channel that energy into that performance and you could be pissed off and I could smack the drums twice as hard or whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. Right. So when Axel came with that kind of energy, it was like, Oh, oh watch out. This is going to be some hair raising shit. Right. And, and there's great attributes about that. And I look back in retrospect and why would you want the guy any other way? It's like, same thing with Wyland, like, Scott could come out one night. You'd be like, whoa, what's going on? But, and 
you know, you wanted to kind of go, dude, can we kind of like, you know, pull that together? But, but it just didn't go that way. And, and, you know, unfortunately that was a different sort of thing. Scott was being drawn by different sort of energy, obviously. Yeah. You know, darker energy, but, but man, he could be great. Some nights he would come out and you just be, Oh, In my opinion, in my opinion, I mean, well, first of all, like as I'm a comic, but I also like do all the music shit, hearing Guns N' Roses in 1987 played on DC 101, they played the whole record. That was one of the big life changing moments. The other one was hearing STP core. And that was when I was like, oh, I can be a lead singer. And I can be as cool as that motherfucker because I don't think there have ever been two singers that are as talented and in their genres and as cool, in my opinion, as Scott Weiland and Axl Rose. When well, Scott I, was perfect, he was perfect. You got to look at the gift of where they came from, their songwriting ability. You know, Scott could sing a melody in like five minutes and you go, oh, that's, <laughs> you know, oh my God. And lyrically, you know, he he had a cool sensibility with lyrics. Same thing with Axl. Axl... If you go back and really dig deep into Axel's lyrics, you know, here you go. They're coming out of the hair, hair era, right? But there's, there's so much depth within the lyrics. And he's able to do a song called Coma, then turn around and sing a song called Sweet Child of Mine, right? So he, he would understand the simplicity of a lyric that's going to resonate to a big audience with a song like Patience or Sweet Child of Mine or whatever. But but he's able to go deeper too. So that was, you know, there's a lot more to when you think about the guy than just the front man, because he, you know, he had all this, this stuff inside that he was able to bring out lyrically. And that's what made that band still to this day have that catalog. That was, wasn't long lived. It wasn't a lot of records. No, no. If you really think about it, it's two, it's two records, really, really three, but you know, because you use your illusion, but it's like the there's so much epic shit on there. It's just it's just filled. Like you could play one of the deep deep cuts from Guns N' Roses, and no one would give a fuck. They'd be like, "This song rips just as hard." And you know, Wyland and his attribute was, you know, he was always trying to dig deeper on the art fact. You know, he was looking for Bowie, and you know, I mean, even Axel. Axel loved Elton. That's why we did November Rain. That's mm-hmm. you know, he he looked to the greats for as we all did. And we're talking about this era of the seventies, you know, we all grew up on the music we're talking about right now, cheap trick, all the greats. And, you know, I remember going to the rock and roll hall of fame and thinking, man, this is not right. I should not be getting inducted before cheap trick and deep purple. And yeah, you know, all these bands, you know, this is, this is weird because as a musician coming up, these are your heroes. And now, like he asked me the question about Robin, I'm like, now he's my friend. I can, I can call him. He, he wrote a, a thing on the back of my book. You know, he, he gave me a quote. You know, and yeah, that kind of thing. And that's that's for me. That's that's like bucket list stuff. I'm like, I've had this great career, but at the same time, I've been able to play with my heroes and. Oh, dude, it's I couldn't agree with you more. Like the people that I've met since I started doing this, that's what that's Bill Burr is one of my best friends. And he has this quote because we were doing something. You know what it was? We were actually doing the goddamn comedy jam at the Roxy. And uh, Dave Kushner is is homies with Bill. And now he's a good friend of mine, too. 
And we did uh, an ACDC song with Burr on drums, Kushner on guitar, my band playing the rest of the parts, and me singing. And I remember I just looked over at Bill, and I was like, this is the coolest shit ever. And then afterwards, he came up to me. He's like, yeah, dude, see, see what happens when you follow your dreams? Cool shit. Yeah, that's right. Cool shit happens. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. All right, listen, let's let's go into a couple more tracks and then we'll get to some facts. I know because I know you got to get out of here. All right, so we're going to skip the second track, go on to Lookout. All right. So this was originally recorded for the debut album and is one of the two previously unreleased original songs from that record demanded that they were they put it on the album. Peter, play just a little smidge of it. This is just a song uh, Robin wrote about trying to get laid. And you've heard the stories about Cheap Trick, but I wanted to ask you, because you have the autobiography coming out, what is the craziest tour story you can tell me? Oh, man. You know, we <laughs> we, we spent almost two years editing my book because, you know, the shenanig- so the, the shenanigans story, the sex, sex, drugs, and rock and roll stuff, I was like, I was like, oh man, I okay, I guess they're gonna get the fact that, you know, I was with a lot of girls and did a lot of drugs and you had you know, great so, hair. <laughs> do I have to tell like twenty of those stories? No. Let's just tell like five. So yeah, dude. you know, that was the hardest thing about writing the book was which stories do I cut out, you know? Like I cut out all my sort of like Charlie Sheen era stuff, you know. Oh like, yeah, where yeah, where does that fit in? Well, that's just straight up, you know, debauchery. But, <laughs> but I mean, there's just so many great ones. But a lot of the craziest stuff happened in South America. Um, you know, we were involved in probably one of the first stadium tours of South America. You know, going all the way through Venezuela and Colombia and uh, Chile, and we would, you know, we played countries no band had ever played before, really. I mean, with the exception, even Queen had only played in Brazil and I think Argentina. So here we are going on a this mad 50,000 a night stadium tour. 
So we, we land in Venezuela, Caracas, and, you know, we've got interpreters everywhere we go. You know, we've got these people that are able to, you know, because in those days, there wasn't a lot of English language at all down there. I'm talking early 90s. So, of course, I hook up with the interpreter who's this beautiful Venezuelan girl. And Why wouldn't you? Of course. <laughs> Bilingual. I, I end up in the jungle of Venezuela with this with this girl and this taxi driver and we find cocaine for three dollars a gram and Fuck and I'm like Yeah, dude. I'm like, Well, give me ten. Give me diez, amigo. Cocaina cocaina, yeah. amigo, uh, diez. <laughs> so the band can't find me. I'm basically gone and one day t- blur turned into three and here we are doing this massive stadium gig and they they end up finding there's no GPS in those days. <laughs> so, you know, it's not yeah, like you're you could, gone, dude. Yeah, you not, are gone. <laughs> it's not like you track me on my phone, you know. It's like so they find me on a balcony of this hotel and I somehow got a hold of like raw uh Caribbean rum and there I am and basically they throw me in the shower and you know, here I'm fairly new to the band at this point too. So they're like, uh oh. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you know? And the one thing about Slash that I always loved about Slash is, you know, it was, he had the Keith Richards philosophy. It's like, if you're going to party all night and sleep in a chandelier, at least you could show up at the gig and, and do a good job. You know, don't. Yeah, just- yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, I make the show. We play the show in Venezuela. Um, and we fly out to Colombia. So we've got this private plane. Well, as soon as we take off, the military bombs the airport. And, it, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dude, that is the yeah, most it, rock and roll shit ever. It's like, it's, it, it's like, when did this plane ride turn into a scene from Con Air? Yeah. <laughs> and, and military coup of, of the government, right? So, and Fucking you red know, dawn. <laughs> the president and his family and his daughter, who's super hot, were at our show. They they were there. And I remember them leaving. And then as soon as we left, it's like, did they wait for us to leave before they bombed the airport? It's like, what? <laughs> we and must protect Axel Rose. We was, must protect Izzy. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal we were there, I guess. So we land in Colombia. We get off the plane. I'm in an SUV with about four bodyguards. We've each got an SUV. It's crazy. And they all have guns. And I remember we pull up to the hotel and there's there's armed military surrounding our hotel. And there's a tank in front of the front door, a tank. And I said to my manager, Doug Goldstein, I said, Doug, what's with the tank? <laughs> and he, he says, like, we thought you guys would want to r- ride it out on stage tomorrow night. I don't know. why. Well, no, he actually said the, t- the tank <laughs> is there to protect you guys. I'm like, what? <laughs> so, and he says, yeah, there's a lot of kidnapping here. There's a lot of people being kidnapped. I go, <laughs> you needed a tank. Yeah, so we, we're, we're here we are in Bogota, Colombia, you know, and we can't leave the hotel. So we have a, you know, we order in, if you will. And uh, that's in the book. All I'm going to say is we order in, but buy the book and the story's great. And then we party and we, then we go and do the, we, we have a problem with the stage. The stage collapses in, in the stadium. We're supposed to do two nights, 50,000 seats. The stage collapses. So, and and the gig, the gear is stuck in Caracas, Venezuela. 
So we have to cancel one of the stadium shows. Well, unbeknownst to us, the promoter tells the fans, your tickets are good for the one show. So now we've got 50,000 kids inside the stadium and 50,000 kids outside the stadium trying to get in. And complete mayhem. Well, we're going through again in some, I think we're in vans, you know, and we're going through and we see this happening outside, basically a riot. And we go on stage and the the tour was in November because that time of the year is basically their spring, you know? So we're, we're on stage about 45 minutes in and we're playing November rain and there's now the stage is collapsed. So they rebuilt the stage. So there's no, roof over us. There's no lighting trust. There's just like makeshift. It's super third world, like not in a good way. And we're like, I'm pretty scared to go out there, to be honest. Now my manager sort of just pushes me and says, it's going to be all right. Get out there. Knock them dead. You know, that's like, oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So we get up and we're playing November rain, torrential downpour, right? Like it had to happen. (laughs) It's a song you're playing. You're, you you're apocalypto conjuring it, speaking in tongues. <laughs> yeah. And so we leave, you know, we got to leave the stage. It's, it's not even, we can't even keep playing. It's so bad. Well, the place riots and they go crazy and we can't go back out. So we end up going back to the hotel and our manager says, okay, everyone pack up. We're getting out of here. And we're like, what? So we, he goes, yeah, we got problems. The promoters are coming. I go, the promoters? And in those days, there was no live nation. It was none of that shit. It's yeah. like, who did you so do got- the promotion with? It was all cartel, like hardcore. And <laughs> here we, we are escaping the drug cartels of Bogota. Like, yeah, Corp. he's like, we wanted to hear the song Estranged. Uh, you did not uh, fulfill your contract, <laughs> so we kill you. <laughs> yeah, so in my book, the story continues. It gets worse and worse and worse. We fly out of Bogota, Colombia. Now we're in the Andes. And do you remember? Do you remember the, the movie uh, Alive? The book. Yes. Yeah, so we're dude. flying well, you over. Guys, the, you crashed, and then you had to eat Izzy. Yeah, we're flying over <laughs> the Andes, and I'm saying, if we do die here, who's going to eat who? Right. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> and I'm eating Izzy. So anyway, the it gets even juicier as we continue through the country, uh, the 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 continent. I remember getting back to L.A., and I was totally frazzled. Like it was really one of the scariest tours that I've ever been on in my life. And, and everything was just sort of like in disarray. And I remember running into Anthony Kiedis and he goes, yeah, man, I can't believe it, man. Like our tour got called off because of you guys. Right. And I'm like, fuck you, Anthony. I'm like, like, go ahead, go down there, be my guest. I said, here we are paving the territory. And, Anthony, you know, he's an interesting character and, <laughs> and, uh, you don't know what you're going to get from him, but, uh, yeah. I, I go, dude, be my guest, get on your airplane, go down there, have fun. I'm just telling you it's no man's land. It's like the wild, wild West down there. So yeah, yeah. in those days, you know, that shit was just not really organized. And I remember taking those countries and, and playing them. And now, now you can go down and do a gig. It's all live nation. And, all squeaky it's clean safe, yeah you know but yeah there's a lot there's a lot of that stuff in the book so 
Get the book, everybody, when it comes out. All right, we only got a couple more uh, minutes for this, so I just want to play my favorite part of this entire record. Uh, it's on the song Need Your Love. So what I loved about this song, and it's a lot of shit that you had said too, is that it starts slow with like a Beatles-like medley, if you want to call it that, and then halfway it just raves up like some sort of like ACDC shit with all these incredible solos. But I wanted to play, this is the most Dougal shit I have ever heard in my life. Peter, play 737 on the record. That, in my opinion, is the reason this record is on this list, the 500 Greatest Albums Rest. That is yeah. the best fucking part, in my opinion, of the, the entire record. And if it wasn't illegal for us to play the full two-minute build, like, I yeah. would play the whole fucking thing, dude. <laughs> yeah. Right, let- Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. So you listen to this record. What's your favorite song on this record? Man, I got to say, I, I think Clock Strikes 10 is probably a, a very, like, I, it's not a deep cut because it's one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs. But uh, Yeah, this is, this is, and this is their encore on the record. Yeah. This is like, this is what they end the show with because they already did Goodbye. They already did Surrender, which, by the way, if anybody fucking knows, uh, the opening of Surrender, the Beastie Boys took uh, and used as their intro for Jimmy Jam, which is the first song off of uh, Check Your Head. And that was what was really cool when I listened to this. I was like, holy shit. All right, but back well, to- Well, I, I, love, back I to- love Clock Strikes 10. Like, But for instance, like when Robin comes to play with me, you know, obviously I'm putting a set list together and I kind of look at it like, okay, we're here to entertain. This is what my band does. We're here to entertain. Let's give them the hits. So, you know, we play a want you to want me. We do surrender. Got to do those. And then we do, uh, we do ain't that a shame because that just works really well. I love the ending of that live, the way they do the ending. So we do that whole round at the end where everyone takes a solo, you know, we do that for a while, which is so fun. And then, and I'm like, should we do California, man? I'm like, oh. People, I don't know how many people that it's a little deeper cut for people that aren't us, right? Like to just please the audience, basically. So we end up, you know, we do Dream Police because that's another just uh, straight up epic cheap trick hit, right? What's better? What's better, Dream Police or Dream Warrior by Dawkins? <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street 3 soundtrack. Well, <laughs> Dream Police. Dream. dream. Dream Police. Dream, no. I was that center, that it, that middle section with the strings and that odd time signature on that yeah. particular song. 
you know, playing that properly. I tell every guy that when the guys come in, you know, if it's Duff on bass or Robert DeLeo or who's ever I'm playing with, Fuck. I'm yeah. like, okay, guys, check out that middle section. That's not four, four. It goes wacky. And I go, and coming back into the outro. I mean, those guys are just so musical without even knowing it. You know, it's, it's just a a great band. And in my opinion, needs a lot more uh, accolades. And when they finally got in the rock and roll hall of fame, I was so happy th- uh, for them because the underdog kind of un, un uh, uh, you know unspoken sort of no, there's never been any ego in front of Cheap Trick you know yeah it that's what I love about them dude great and and, and such a great way to end the show like they've they've just rocked. I don't even know, 16,000 Japanese screaming teenagers and 20-somethings. And then they come out, they play their hits, they fucking kill it with this song, uh, which is great because this song is about partying and it's about like pretty wild weekends. And I wanted to ask you, because you seem to have slowed down a bit just in your partying and your crazy nights. Why did you slow down? (laughs) Uh, my liver (laughs) I call him Ted (laughs) lawyers are expensive jail is not fun Uh, I've done all that it's all in the book but um, (laughs) it's on Amazon it's called Double Talk and Jive which was a Double Talk and Jive is the name of the book and uh, pre-ordered on Amazon and uh, basically, I, you know, my body just started telling me, I, you can't do this anymore. And uh, funniest thing is, I do have a beer coming out, though. And I'll let you know, it's going to be at Bristol Farms. Uh, <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude. And guess what it's called? Uh, permed <laughs> The drummer beer. Fuck yeah. The dude. drummer. And it's coming out of Brazil. It's Belgium made. Uh, style. Dude, you love Brazil. That's one thing anybody's going to take away from this podcast is that you fuck with South America. Well, I'm down there. Ninety percent. I'm down there. I'm down there about five or six times a year. It's like, like I say, go where they want you. Go where the love is. And I, I do a lot of business in Brazil. I make records down there. I just made my beer there. I'm doing a, a bunch of cool projects out of Brazil because you know the people are amazing, uh, very passionate. And still, if, if any, you go down there and play a rock show and they, they go nuts. They just love it. They just love rock and roll. And yeah, I feel like, I feel like every other place around the world besides America gets rock and roll and knows how to go to a rock and roll concert and fucking like thrash. Yeah. Whereas like in America, we're so boring at shows. Well, like Germany, you know, you think about Germany, they're like the, 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 the territory that loves heavy metal, right? And I remember going and playing uh, with the Hollywood Vampires. And, you know, I played with Motorhead for a short stint. I don't know if you know that. But I was in. No, I didn't. I was That's in. Motor- I actually played. My first show was at the 930 Club. In 2009, I replaced Mickey on drums for about a month. So I went out with Motorhead and we opened in the 930 Club. And then we went to Roseland in New York and did all those size venues. So, you know, here we are doing ace of spades and you know overkill and you know all the great songs you know uh and uh so the hollywood vampires decides they're going to do a version of ace of spades you know and i'm like okay guys make sure you learn it right because 
the Motorhead fans will kill you. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I remember thinking that when I joined Motorhead, if I don't, if I go up here, you know, I started growing a beard. I didn't take a shower for about a week. And, <laughs> started hanging out of the rainbow room. Yeah. By, I mean, I love Le- Lemmy was, yeah. Lemmy was my buddy called me up and asked me to play drums. I'm like, Oh man, what an honor. I go, you don't even have, yeah. you don't even have to pay me. Do I have to pay you or what's the deal? So end up going to Germany with the Hollywood vampires and before we go on stage, I'm like, I don't think, I think we should cut Ace of Spades from the set tonight. And, and, and they were like, well, what, why? I mean, Johnny Depp's like, well, what, why? You know, I'm like, well, because if we fuck up, they're going to kill us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember being in Mannheim, Germany with Guns N' Roses and uh, Nine Inch Nails opened for us. And the, the crowd hated them, 75,000 seats, and they just booed the whole time. I remember thinking, there's certain countries, if they don't like you, they'll let you know. It's like, you know, I remember opening for Metallica with the cult when I was in the cult. And we went out one night, there was 10 rows, the first 10 rows had their backs turned to us, flipping us off. <laughs> it's like, it's like, that, was during just, that was during Justice for All. You know, they could give a fuck about the cult. They, they were yeah, like, they didn't, they didn't want to see you. They didn't want to see you. They, all they wanted. Where is, where is fucking uh, James Hetfield? You know, Seek and Destroy in, in, in 1989, 99% yeah. guys in the audience. Definitely a, a, a portion of them were probably into Satan. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Oh was, my God. Yeah. I'm, dude, I'm still into Satan, bro. <laughs> Come on. You're not into Satan, bro. <laughs> yeah. You, Beelzebub's not your homie. Hey, I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question because usually we'll do facts. And, and just because I'm having so much fun talking to you, I, I just wanted to always ask you this because you've had such an incredible career and you've played with, I mean, do you just, you played with like, Two people that, like I said before, changed my life, and you've had such a storybook career playing with the greats. What's the one show? What's the, what was the what was the one show that you've done in your career that you feel like was that perfect moment? Just it was just like it's almost like the universe was just being like, "I love you, Matt Sorum. You have this moment." Oh man, I mean, so many highlights. Uh, probably one of my greatest experiences was the Freddie Mercury tribute, which was done at Wembley stadium and we were invited to open the show and it was us and Metallica. And then uh queen came out and you can watch it on YouTube. It's probably one of the most incredible shows. I mean, backstage was David Bowie, you know, Annie Lennox, uh, Robert Plant, Elton, Elton and Axel did Bohemian Rhapsody and just, you got to watch it. Oh, I will. They just crushed it. And, uh, I got to say that night was just sort of like, I remember meeting Elizabeth Taylor. It's in my book. I, I drank with Liza Minnelli and George Michael. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, like just one of those nights that you just will never, ever be able to. It was sort of like, like being in a dream world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Walking out going, wow. You know, Wembley stadium sold out. Um, But you know, I would like to, you know, when I look back at, especially Guns N' Roses, it's just sort of a surreal feeling. It's like almost like watching a movie on somebody else's movie, yeah. like, and you're in it. It's, it's just, it's just so weird. And, you know, 
the fact that we're sitting here and, you know, I'm out in Palm Springs and got two French bulldogs and hanging out. And One of them's got diarrhea, sure. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she does. She's a little sick. Dude, if, if you were and, with me, if we would have been recording this at the studio, I would have given you some flangly. I think it's called flangy because my dog shit all over the floor like a few weeks ago. So they stocked me up on medicine for um, all right. It's so weird. It's this, going to the vet right now. Oh, it's, you know, it's weird I've, I've doing it. everything. That's why, like, usually, usually we would have done facts. We would have done all this shit. Uh, but it was like so much fun to talk to you. And I know you got to go. So I will be. So to close this out, I just want to ask you, and I want to thank you, man. Mm-hmm. Like from the bottom of my heart, Matt. Like, dude, I, you're a fucking homie. I, I love everything you do. I'm such a huge fan. And the fact that I got to sit down and talk to you for a few minutes during this crazy time that we're all dealing with, being able to chill with you right now made me forget that the world was falling apart. <laughs> like it was that perfect yeah. in my opinion. Um, so what, so before we go, give us your final thoughts on cheap trick live at Budokan. Well, cheap trick live at Budokan, one of my favorite records of all time like she said top 500 rock and roll albums or albums ever um it just captured the sheer energy of a true rock and roll band four guys playing music together and that's what resonated with people going well here's four guys on stage live and the moment was captured and one of the greatest live bands of that era and uh it, there it is. If you have it on vinyl or if you have, if you're streaming it or whatever you're doing, you know, sit down and play it on vinyl one night. I have it on vinyl. Get yourself a, a cocktail or a, or roll yourself a joint. Or do both. <laughs> or do a bump of ketamine. If, if that's what, you, if that's what you're into, bro, do ketamine. Hey, man, if it was a double album, <laughs> I would roll my joint in the double album. That's what I used to do when I was a kid. I would just take the double album, get the seeds out, right? Yeah. Roll that and use, you know, so roll joint. Listen to it on vinyl from the beginning to the end. If you can get out during this apocalypse and get it on vinyl, watch somebody. It's like, I'm going to risk my whole family's health and safety to go out and get cheap trick at Budokan. Well, you could get it (laughs) online. You could get that stuff delivered from Amazon or one of them. But, yeah, uh, you know, if you got that capability. But uh, thanks for having me, man. Um, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump on a Zoom chat for Adopt the Arts right now, my charity. We're doing – we're schooling the kids on Zoom. Yes. So. Yes. And we'll, we'll promote all that. Uh, Matt, I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, dude. Thank you so much, buddy. I hope uh, you're happy and healthy out there. And uh, thank you, bud. You got it, brother. Did I fanboy out? Who was worse, me with Matt Sorum or Burt Kreischer with Adam Sandler on Laugh-Aid? If you haven't seen that, watch it. Find Matt on all social media at Matt Sorum. If you want anything Matt-related, go to the website mattsorum.com. And don't forget to pick up Matt's book coming in May of 2020 called Double Talk and Jive, True Rock and Roll Stories from the Drummer of Guns N' Roses, The Cult, and Velvet Revolver. Get it, everybody. Get it on Amazon. Listen to it on Spotify. I don't even know if you can do that. Please subscribe to The 500 on Spotify. Now, we just listened to Cheap Trick from 1978. This week, Matt Penfield chose Brendan Benson. Check out his new single, Richest Man, 
Released on Jack White's Third Man Records and available on Spotify. It's evident this dude loves Cheap Trick. Check out the link on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you were in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500 website, send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Graham Parsons' week with his 1974 album, Grievous Angel. You've got some homework to do. Listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy. Double. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of the Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Next Chapter Podcasts.